Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Porch. My name is Jeffrey Anderson. Hope you are all having a good day. So in today's episode, pretty packed show, I'd say. So we have, first off, NBA playoffs have been going for a little bit now, so these will be a little late, but first round's still not over yet, so I'll be giving my predictions there, who's going to win the championship, all that good stuff. Um, also, we had the F1 we had at Barcelona, the Spanish Grand Prix. Talk a little bit about that. Race wasn't very exciting, so we'll just lightly touch on that. Also had uh, FedEx Cup playoffs start uh, at TPC Boston. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then to end the show off, we will talk about possibly one of the biggest moves uh, in sports, one of the most shocking moves in sports if it happens, uh, Lionel Messi potentially leaving Barcelona. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, quick disclaimer, before we actually do start, today's a pretty hot day out. Uh, it's like 100 degrees, 95 degrees out today. So, uh, if you hear me drinking some water every now and then, that's what that's for. It's really hot out today. Most days I can make it through a majority of the episode without um, drinking, without taking a drink before the cuts and whatnot, but... Periodically, you may hear a little pause in the audio or something of that nature. That's probably me taking a drink of water because it's a hot day out. So, anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and talk about some NBA playoffs. So, playoffs have been going for a little over a week now, I believe. And we've had some series happen, be done with, some sweeps. So, let's go ahead and talk about what's already said and done. First, let's go over to the Eastern Conference. We had... The Toronto Raptors sweeping the Brooklyn Nets in four games. And it was expected that Toronto would beat them. I think everybody kind of figured this would happen, but not this bad. Uh, but to be fair, the Nets are plagued with injuries. There's no KD, no Kyrie Irving, no Jamal Crawford, who they just signed, uh, and no DeAndre Jordan as well. So they're basically playing with a skeleton crew out there. And this really wasn't a team that was looking to compete this year anyway. Uh, we all know that KD was going to be out this year with the Achilles injury he suffered in last year's finals against the Raptors. So next year will be the first full year we'll be able to see how good the Nets really are, how well they can compete against the top teams in the East. As for Toronto, they look great in this series. Uh, they had four players averaging over 17 points a game, and two of them... Uh, two more players, excuse me, that averaged over 10 a game, uh, really flexing their depth in this series, showed their teamwork as well. And that last year, you know, even with losing Kawhi Leonard, they had a lot of questions going into this year. How good are they actually without the likes of Kawhi Leonard on the team? And I think this series, they really proved, like, hey, we are here to stay in the playoffs. You will see us here for a very long time. Sorry about that. A little windy out. Notes are getting knocked over and whatnot. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, man, that guy in the playoffs is something. In this series, he averaged 21 points, four boards, a uh, little under seven, little under eight assists on 52% shooting, and an absolutely absurd 56 three-point percentage on eight and a half attempts per game. Uh, and he's really turned into a sharpshooter for them, especially when they needed him the most in these playoffs. And Pascal Siakam, Sergi Baca, Kyle Lowry also had very good series. Uh, they had about 21, 19, and 17.5 and points respectively. 
But Van Vliet was the guy who really sort of took over in this series as as kind of not unexpected per se, but Siakam is really the number one guy here. And it was very, it was pleasantly surprising to see Fred Van Vliet do so well again in the playoffs. So it'll be interesting to see if the Raptors can keep this momentum going in the next series uh, against the Boston Celtics who swept the 76ers. Uh, This was a really shocking series. The Celtics looked great, and they didn't even have Gordon Hayward there, who has looked really good all year. Um, They have a three-headed monster in the form of Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, and Jalen Brown. They each averaged over 20 a game on at least 45% shooting. Love to see that from those guys. Jason Tatum especially looked the part, averaging 27 a game on just under 49% shooting as well as shooting 45% from three on seven and three quarters attempts per game. Uh, If it wasn't clear already, Jason Tatum is a star in this league. And I think he's part of that next young wave of growing stars, him, Luka Doncic, Ja Morant, Zion Williamson, guys like this. He is a part of this next wave. So really be on the lookout for Jason Tatum and make some moves in the next coming years in the playoffs. So while they played well, Celtics had a great series. The Sixers couldn't do much of anything. Uh, They didn't have Ben Simmons here, but even then, they still just couldn't close out any games. Joel Embiid, the poor guy, he had a great series. He put up 30 a game, 46% shooting with 12 boards, also 1.5 steals and 1.3 blocks a game in there. And Tobias Harris, man, he just continues to disappoint for the Sixers after being paid a near-max extension only averaging 16 a game on a terrible 38% shooting. That's not what you want to see from your near-max players. Uh, And the worst offender for him is that he only took 15 three-point attempts this entire series. He was specifically signed to be a floor spacer for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. This is why he was signed to the team, to space the floor out, take those threes when they're needed to. Instead, Joel Embiid took one more three in this series than he did. He let a center, who was not very good at shooting threes, outshoot him from outside the arc. Embiid was also more accurate as well, shooting 25% behind the arc, while Harris only shot 13% from three, making just two three-pointers the whole series, only shooting 3.75 a game. And, man, Tobias Harris is just really having a go at it i really feel bad for the guy uh he was paid the big money and so far at least he has not been living up to that so with this disappointing playoff series came well it was kind of expected next uh the firing of head coach brett brown Uh, this was his seventh season with the team Uh, He was part of the process, which is when, for those of you who don't know, Philly went through three straight seasons in a row where they were just completely terrible to tank, to get draft picks. They won. They had three seasons in a row with less than 20 wins, one of which they only had 10 wins, just absolutely abysmal. Uh, And then the last three years, they've made the playoffs, getting bounced in the second round every year except for this one. Uh, And, well, as long as they... While they've never really gone as far as they would have liked in the playoffs with Brett Brown, and he'd undoubtedly got his fair amount of time at with the organization, I really don't think that 
this falls on him. I think this was more of a firing because they had to, because, you know, he'd been there so long. Maybe the players were tired of him, didn't believe in the system anymore, but this problem isn't all on him. I feel like Elton Brand has a large share of blame in this situation. Uh, for those of you who do not know, he is the general manager of the team. Uh, he's in charge of making all of the basketball decisions with this team, such as deciding what players to bring in and let go. And also before him, even Brian Colangelo and Sam Hinkie, creator of the process, they didn't help him out very much either. So I think as long as Elton Brand is there, and as long as they have poor management in Philly, it's going to be very hard for any head coach that comes in to do well with this roster. So let's take a look at what happened uh, before. Let's, ha let's see what happened with the general managers while Brett Brown is here. So first, Sam Hinkie. He was responsible for those three terrible Philly seasons to get the draft picks. He basically told Brett Brown, hey, listen, what if we go like three seasons in a row and we just do terrible? Uh, you have your job security. I will let you keep your job, but let's go three years in a row and just suck and just lose as many games as possible, and then we can start getting some draft picks. You know, Like you do in 2K sometimes where you'll be – messing around with a franchise and be like, hey, I wonder what would happen if I tanked for like five years in a row and just got like a guard, a shooting guard, a, a, four, a couple forwards and a center all from the draft. That's basically what they did. And so what did he do with those picks? First off, he got Michael Carter-Williams, who as a Bucks fan I know very well. I hated that guy. <laughs> Sorry. He was decent enough. He got the rookie of the year. Um, and then he got traded. Uh, but then after this, you know, this is sort of a pedestrian drafting year. Things get really interesting after this. So Joel Embiid gets drafted in 2014 for number three, but he wouldn't play until the 2016 season because of his foot injuries. Uh, I think we all know that story. A lot of people, I don't even know if they expected Joel Embiid to even play in the league. I think people were surprised he was still on the team after that second foot injury. Um, but then the very next year, Hinky decides to draft another center. <laughs> Jaleel Okafor with the third pick, uh, who would fizzle out very quickly. And he wouldn't do much of anything because this was right at the t tipping point when Steph Curry and shooting a bunch of threes a game and really prioritizing on shooters became a big thing. This is something that Jaleel Okafor was not. He was a very good post player in college and not much else. And he definitely did not live up to that third overall pick. And guess who went one pick right after Julio Okafor? None other than Chris Stops Porzingis, who is one of the best uh, big men in terms of three-point shooting in the league. So then, after this class, Sam Hinkie was out. And Brian Colangelo then comes in. Uh, he drafts Ben Simmons at number one, who is a great player. Uh, he's really good at seeing the floor very well, very good in transition. But he still can't shoot. Uh, and I know a lot of people thought that he would be able to develop into a shooter. you know. But if you can't shoot in a shooter's league, that really hinders your stock. And I think while Ben Simmons is an all-star, he really deserves that. He still puts up very good numbers. Uh, in the half-court set, he just is almost a non-factor for Philly. And he needs to get better there. And once again, this is a class that has Brandon Ingram go... Right, right after Ben Simmons, uh, who's currently doing very well at New Orleans and actually has a jumper, <laughs> but 
But I do believe that the Ben Simmons pick was right at the time because Simmons was clearly the better player coming out of college, had the higher ceiling. So I get the pick. And then the year after this, Markel Fultz is drafted at number one. And we all know how this goes. Uh, He's currently a bust. He's in Orlando now playing for the Magic. Really ugly situation happened with him. Weird injury. And once again, this isn't a draft where two picks later, Jason Tatum was made who just destroyed them in the playoffs, as well as even if they wanted to trade down uh, to that first pick and potentially you know, get some more capital back. They could have drafted a guy like De'Aaron Fox or Donovan Mitchell a little later in the lottery. So then Brian Colangelo was out, and now Elton Brand comes in. And these teams have been really focused around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, who both cannot shoot to save their lives in a shooter's league. Uh, but they do have a great supporting cast who they traded for Jimmy Butler for Robert Covington, and they also have J.J. Redick, as well as trading for uh, Tobias Harris, who would later get paid. But after this year, things get really head-scratching with this team, and I think anyone who isn't a Philly fan is kind of like, asking themselves what are you guys doing or even Philly fans themselves are probably like what are you doing so they let JJ Redick walk who for my money was the most important player on that Phillies team on that 76ers team what am I talking about 76ers team last year he really spaced the floor for them he's a he was a true three-point threat and they also traded Jimmy Butler who was easily the best hustle guy on that team uh getting after uh loose balls, things of that nature, very good defensively. Uh, And then he was also potentially the best two-way player on the team. You can maybe make the argument for Joel Embiid. Uh, I think that it's – I think it would have been Jimmy Butler on that team. His offense matched his defensive output. Um, So what what does Alton Brand do now? He's got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, two guys who can't shoot, and sort of a hodgepodge of shooters here and there on the team. Sort of a hodgepodge of players. He signs Al Horford, who is another big man to clog up the paint. Uh, this is in a free agency year, by the way, with guys such as Kemba Walker and D'Angelo Russell. Two guys who, D'Angelo isn't the most efficient shooter in the league, but he is a guard, someone who could facilitate. And Kemba Walker is one of the best teammates in the NBA. You throw him onto any team, and he will thrive there and do very well. But no. Uh, Elton Brand decides he wants to sign a big man, Al Horford, for the splash factor. You know, just to get a big name in. Then he signs Tobias Harris to a near-max deal, five years, $180 million, uh, now reducing the cap room that they have to go get more shooters and surround Simmons and Embiid. Uh, but I guess, looking back, it does make a little sense because Harris can at least space the floor, but they still did pay too much for him, I believe. So now Philly is stuck between a rock and a hard place with their roster. And in the future, I'm not sure when, but they will eventually need to make a decision between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Because as of right now, they clearly cannot go deep in the playoffs with these two on the roster. Their half-court sets are just abysmal with these two on the floor, mainly Ben Simmons. So I think a good example of how to build is my Milwaukee Bucks. I'm not saying this because I'm a Bucks fan, but 
they have probably the closest comparison to this, except without another non-shooter on the roster who's like an all-star. So you have Giannis, uh, one of the best players in the league currently. Can't really shoot that well. Will take shots every once in a while. Not very good at them. So uh, they realized, hey, Giannis is not going to be able to shoot very well. So he's going to be driving in the paint, game in and game out. We need guys to surround him that can shoot. So they signed shooter after shooter after shooter and surround him. They brought in Kyle Korver this year, Pat Connaughton, I think, last year or this year. can't remember what year he was at. They drafted Dante DiVincenzo, who's been a great guy for them. Just surrounding, surrounding uh, Giannis with all these guys who can hit three-point shots. Elton Brand signed guys for the name value and to make a cla- and make a splash because Philly is technically a big market. So while Brett Brown got his due with the Sixers, he's definitely um definitely had his chance, if you will, right? He was there seven years. I don't think that you can blame the lack of his success on him. Uh instead I think it should fall on the shoulders of the GMs of the past who could never build him the team he needed to show what he could do. So anyway, mini rant over the Phillies firing Brett Brown over with. So let's move on now to a different series. Next being Miami and Indiana uh, getting getting swept in four games by Miami. And look, man, Miami has been one of the most fun teams to watch this year. They have a mix of hard-nosed vets with these young rising stars in the league. You have Goran Dragic, who's had a really good series, averaging a little under 23 a game on 48% shooting, draining 41% of his threes on seven and a quarter attempts a game. Jimmy Butler also proves again that he is such an underrated player in this league. Uh, he averaged a little under 20 a game on 40% shooting, which isn't spectacular, but he also added two and a half steals a game showing his defense, showing why he's one of the best defenders in the league. You also have young guns such as Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo doing very well in this series, averaging 16.5 and and 15 a game respectively, while shooting around 46 and 47% as well. Tyler Hero also shot about average from the three-point land, shooting 36% on 5.5 attempts a game. Uh, so while Miami did do very well, they were playing a Pacers team that didn't have DeMontis Sabonis, who you could argue was their best player this year, made the all-star team. But they had a very interesting story going for them, and that was T.J. Warren. He went off when he got into the bubble initially. Uh, he earned runner-up for bubble MVP, losing out to Damian Lillard. And in the bubble seeding games, he averaged 28 points on 56.5% shooting with an absolutely ridiculous 50% from three on around six attempts a game. Uh, This would lead him to posting a plus-minus of 8.9. And he really went insane at the beginning of the bubble, but he's sort of, and putting this in air quotes, cooled off in the playoffs, only averaging 20 a game on 47% shooting, shooting 36.8% from the three with 4.75 attempts per game. Other Pacer players did well, such as former Buck Malcolm Brogdon, so still, still salty he's not on the team. He averaged 21.5 points a game, 4.3 boards, 10 assists, averaged a double-double this series, 
Oladipo, it's good to see him back. He still doesn't quite look 100%. He only averaged a little under 18 points a game, uh, 2.5 assists. And then Miles Turner also had a double-double in this series, averaging a little under 16 points a game, about 11 boards. Uh, but they real, but they really missed having Sabonis there. Once again, was an all-star this year. He averaged 18.5 a game on 54% shooting and also had 12 boards on the year uh, per game. So with Sabonis, perhaps the Pacers would win a couple of games from Miami, but as a team that only has one player over the age of 30 on the entire roster right now, uh, this is a team that still has yet to hit their full potential. And you can expect them to see them competing toward the top of the Eastern Conference for a while. So the last matchup in the East is the Bucks and the Magic, of which the Bucks currently have a 3-1 lead on the Magic. And after the Magic won game one, people had a lot of questions, a lot of doubts thrown at this Milwaukee team. A lot of shade being thrown, saying there's no way. How can you even lose to the Magic? And they quickly silenced those, I believe, in the games following because they've won every game since. So after that first game lost, the Bucks have since beaten the Magic in the next matchups by 15 points, then 14 points, and then 15 again. And Giannis has really looked the part of the back-to-back -back MVP. Uh, he's posting 31 points a game, shooting a little under 50, 58%. He's also 35% from three-point land with five attempts a game. That's kind of a scary sight to see. Also putting up a little under 16 boards a game. Also averaging a little under 7 assists a game, which is very good for him. Uh, as well as Giannis doing well, this team has played a very deep lineup. They have 10 guys who play over 13 minutes a game. And as per usual this year, they still have the best defense in the NBA. Prioritizing, locking the paint down, only giving up an average of 27 points in the paint during the postseason as well as holding the third-best defensive rating at 102.9. Defensive rating is the amount of points scored per 100 possessions. 102.9 is pretty dang good. Uh, however, with all the stuff that's been going well for them, they do have one question mark for the rest of the playoffs. And this is the same case last year. And that question mark is Chris Middleton. Coming into the year, the Bucks extended Chris Middleton with a near-max contract of five years, $177 million. And this is a very similar situation to Tobias Harris, where many questioned the contract, but people understood it because Milwaukee didn't have much cap space to sign other players, and being in a smaller market, uh, they may not have been able to attract a big free agent such as Akemba Walker. For example, and he played really well in the regular season, uh, he had a line of a little under 21 points a game, uh, six boards, about four assists on a near 50-40-90 year, uh, missing out on the field goal percentage at 49.7%, very close to the 50-40-90. Um, however, in the playoffs, just like last year, he has not looked the part. He's averaging 13.5 points a game, which is really low because of a really terrible two-point game two uh, but his percentages have also been really bad he posted he's been posting 33.9 percent 
field goal percentage and 37.5% from three, which is pretty decent still, but nowhere near what he was shooting in the regular season. So I believe that the Bucks will close out the series in the next game, but Chris does need to play better nonetheless. So while his game three and performances were better, he still needs to improve his shooting in the next coming rounds if the Bucks want to win the title against some very stingy perimeter defenses that they will go against in the West in the finals, or even against Toronto uh, if they meet up against them. So now that all the current running series in the East are all caught up, let's go over some of the predictions for the next couple of rounds. First, let's go Milwaukee Bucks versus Miami Heat, which is my projected, or not projected, basically at this point, that's what the matchup's going to be. Sorry, Orlando, I'm not really giving you a chance here. Uh, this is basically a battle of two deep teams, and they each have their different strengths. So let's go ahead and look at the lineups, some offense, some defensive notes, and then I'll see who I have winning the series. So the lineup Milwaukee's been running in the playoffs. They have Eric Bledsoe at point, Wesley Matthews at shooting guard, Chris Middleton small forward, Giannis at power forward, and Brooke Lopez at center. Some guys coming off the bench at guard include George Hill, Dante DiVincenzo, and Pat Connington. At the forward position, you've got Kyle Korver, Marvin Williams, and Ersan Ilyasova. And then for some centers, you can expect to see Robin Lopez and DJ Wilson. Uh, this roster is has a top five player on it. Top three, you could argue, at any moment in time. And some stellar defense. As previously stated, Giannis has been doing Giannis things in the playoffs. And the Bucks have been squashing the Magic so far. Once again, they have 10 guys playing 13 minutes a game, keeping the roster fresh, as well as their star, Giannis, only playing 32.5 minutes per game in the playoffs. So this has been their game plan kind of all year, though. So what they'll do is they will smash, smash, smash their opponent in the first three quarters. They will just all gas, no breaks, just continue to lay it on whoever they're playing. And then in the last quarter, this allows them to rest their key guys, such as Middleton, Bledsoe, Giannis, and have basically a full fourth quarter of garbage time because they've just beaten the crap out of their opponents. So this works well in the regular season, and it works well in the first, it's worked well in the first round after that poor first game. But this won't work down the road. Uh, I don't even think this will work against this Miami team. They will definitely have to take a different approach. So for their offense... Layups and threes, that's basically all that the Bucks like to shoot. So Giannis will smash the paint, you know, get at opponents, just relentless from there. And when he's stuffed, when they build a wall around him, the ball is kicked out to oodles of shooters on the edge. Uh, offensive rating, which is points scored per 100 possessions, in the playoffs for the Bucks is 111.3, which ranks them 10th in the category during the playoffs, so not the best. But they do have the highest pace, not only in the playoffs so far, but in the whole year, which is the amount of possessions the team uses per game at 105.5 this season. So they play really fast. They really like to play at a breakneck speed, beat you down with their depth. Uh, one thing that could cause for some concern is that they've had a lot of turnovers early in the playoffs. They have the worst turnover percentage at 16.3%. As for their defense, they have, for my money, the best defense in the league. Uh, 
They prioritize the paint. They don't let teams get easy buckets. They have a defensive rating, or once again, the points allowed per 100 possessions, of 102.9, third best in the playoffs so far. So their defense is looking really good. Giannis just won Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, I think he deserved it. Maybe that's a little biased being a Bucks fan, but uh, you can argue with me in the comments if you want about that. I'll gladly give my side of the th uh, my side of things. So now let's go ahead and we looked at the box. Let's see what the Heat have. Lots of depth at all. Once again, lots of vets, lots of young guys in the mix. Their lineup they've been going with in this playoff series. They have, they've had Goran Dragic at point guard, Duncan Robinson at shooting guard, Jimmy Butler and Derek Jones Jr. at the forward spots, and Bam Adebayo at the center. Some key players off the bench, Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero. Kendrick Nunn would normally be starting, but he had left the bubble. Andre Iguodala, Jay Crowder, Myers Leonard are guys in the forward spots you can expect to see off the bench, and Kelly Olenek is their backup center. So they have lots of interplay between the guards and Bam Adebayo, playing what they call a space and pace system. So for their offense, they have guys such as Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero being very dangerous on the perimeter. But they also have a force inside with not the tallest guy in the league in there, Bam Adebayo, but just he has one of the highest motors of anyone you will see in the league. And he sort of embodies the signature heat culture, which is key for this to work with great teamwork, good hustle, high energy play. You know, if you don't play hard, you're going to go on the bench. That's how it's always been under Spolstra. That's how it's always been under Pat Riley. And you can really see this. Uh, in the playoffs, they have an assist percentage of 64%, and that is fourth best among teams in the playoffs. They've also grabbed the best percentage of rebounds, once again showing their hustle at 55.3%, the absolute highest number of any team. Defense, they're also very good, once again, high motor, hardworking guys, such as Jimmy Butler. They have a defensive rating of 103.9, third highest in the playoffs, giving them a net rating of 8.8, .8, which is offensive rating minus your defensive rating, of 8.8, .8, which is fifth, ugh, excuse me, fifth best in the playoffs. So between these two teams, who do I have winning? I have the Bucks winning this in six games, and here is why. So while the Heat had the hustle and shooting to match the Bucks in those categories, such as you know, fast break, things of that nature. The Bucks are overall just a deeper team, as well as having a harder defensive matchup in Giannis Antetokounmpo because while Bam Adebayo does play really big, plays really strong, gets a lot of blocks a game, he's only six foot nine at the end of the day. When you have a guy such as Giannis at seven feet who has moves like a point guard basically dunking all over you, this will be his toughest defensive matchup to date. Uh, so, but honestly, this series depends on one person, and that's going back to Chris Middleton. If he can give the Bucks 20 a game, they should be good to move on. But if not, they will need the help of other players to step up in this series. So next up, let's take the next projected series. Actually, this one isn't even projected. Both these teams have won already. The Boston Celtics versus the Toronto Raptors. So this could potentially, besides one other series we'll talk about a little later down the line, the most exciting series in the playoffs. You have two rising stars and Pascal Siakam and Jason Tatum facing off. And I believe this will be like the first meeting of many between these two guys. 
Really looking forward to seeing that in the Eastern Conference. So let's go ahead and look at the Raptors first. Point guard, you have Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet at shooting guard, Oju Anunobi at, sh- at small forward, Pascal Siakam playing power forward, and Marcus Saw at the center position. Guys off the bench you can expect to see. Norman Powell, Terrence Davis, Matt Thomas, all at the guard position. Pat McCaw is currently out. You also have at the forward spot, Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Stanley Johnson. And then the backup center is none other than Serge Ibaka. And Siakam is the obvious obvious star here, but Fred Van Vliet, man, he's been a scary sight in these playoffs so far. So offensively, they are a very efficient uh, team. They play very good team basketball, almost Spurs-esque uh, basketball. That's the name of the game for them. They have the second highest offensive rating in the playoffs at 122.9, as well as playing some good team basketball, assisting each other 67.8% of the time in the postseason. Once again, this is against a broken Nets team, however. They also play very low-mistake basketball. They have a turnover percentage of 10.1 so far in the playoffs, as well as a league-best 2.54 assist-to-turnover ratio in the playoffs so doing very well efficiency wise they also shoot very well uh they have an effective field goal percentage of 59.2 in the playoffs this is second highest for them or out of any playoff team and defensively they're very solid they have lots of stronghold guys they have the second best defensive rating in the playoffs at 102.4 as well as allowing the second least amount of points in the paint at 32 a game but once again against a crappy Nets team, no offense Nets. And they are very good at making opponents miss during the playoffs with an effective field goal percentage at 48.2 for their opponents, which is the third lowest so far. So now let's take a look at who they have to go up against. The Celtics lineup you have Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart at the guard positions, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum at small forward and power forward, and Daniel Theus at center. Coming off the bench, you've got Brad Wanamaker and Romeo Langford at the guard positions. Grant Williams and Semi O. I'm so sorry. Very bad at pronunciations. Oele. I really hope I pronounce that right. I told someone, I think my dad told me, I'm really bad with pronunciations in this and I need to work on it. Obviously, I didn't work on it at all, so very sorry about that, Semi. You also have at the center spot. Enos Cantor, and Robert Williams III. So they have, <clears throat> as previously mentioned, three-headed monster, normally four with Hayward, but he is out, of Kemba Walker, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown. Each of these guys can drop 20 a game every night. So offensively, while they are hurting without Hayward, they still are plenty capable after the switch from Kyrie Irving to Kemba Walker. They have the fourth best offensive rating in the playoffs at 117.2, but they also play lots of iso ball at a lowly 48.7 assist percentage. Shooting hasn't been the best in the playoffs and an effective field goal percentage of 52.3, which is best for 13th out of everyone in the playoffs right now. However, they do keep the ball out of other teams' hands with a turnover percentage of just 11% which is good for third best. Defensively, very solid on the perimeter with some solid interior defense as well. 
Defensive rating of 105 in the postseason, placing them fifth overall, giving them a net rating of 12.3, which is second best. They are the best at making opponents miss so far, with an opponent effective field goal percentage of 44.3, which is currently the best rating against any team. So while this may be a very hard matchup to gauge with two very young faces of the league potentially coming up, my pick is Toronto in seven. So this will be a very close series. You have the big three from the Celtics who will put up a lot of points. But the Raptors simply have the better perimeter defense to contest with these guys. You've got Pascal Siakam, who can be very good when he's out there. Fred Van Vliet's shown some solid defense in the past. So the Raptors also have this championship mentality. They were here last year, and I think that they have largely proven their doubters wrong uh, so far. So that is why I have Toronto winning in seven. So next up, let's look at the Eastern Conference Finals, a rematch of last year's Bucks versus Raptors. And this is, once again, second year, second year in a row to these two meeting, and this should be very exciting. So matching up, as previously stated, the Bucks are a very deep team, arguably the best player in the league at any moment, with the best defensive, defensive unit in the league. And the Raptors have a championship experience to get past the Bucks and have a proven formula to beat the Bucks by building a wall around Giannis in the paint, literally not letting him in. So even without Kawhi, this will be a very tough matchup, and both teams can go to the finals, but only one of them can. And my choice is the Bucks in seven. Here's why. So the Bucks defense is built to make teams shoot tough shots such as mid-ranges and floaters. Last year against the Raptors, they were going up against who is the best mid-range shooter in the league in Kawhi Leonard. And as good as the Raptors are this year, they do not have Kawhi, who is there to help them with this. Also, I'm not sure if the Raptors' interior defense can be good enough for four games to keep Giannis at bay, especially with an excellent defender in Kawhi Leonard also missing from this meeting so once again i have the bucks winning in seven moving on to the to the finals so now let's go ahead and look over at the western conference and let's start with the most recent uh matchup at the top of the uh playoff tree if you'll call it the lakers versus the blazers so the lakers have been winning the series three to one uh, they have the best player in the league, LeBron, leading a charge in the postseason after a very disappointing first year. Uh, they've been playing very well. Uh, their lineup looks like you have uh, LeBron running the point. You have KCP, Contavious Caldwell-Pope at shooting guard. Danny Green, small forward. Anthony Davis at power forward. And JaVale McGee is their starting center. Some bench players also, they have Alex Caruso, J.R. Smith, Dion Waiters, and Quinn Cook. Wow, that's a meme team <laughs> in itself, as well as Kyle Kuzma and Markeith Morris at the forward spots, and Dwight Howard as their backup center. So once again, best player in the league, and another top 10 player in the league in Anthony Davis to carry what is actually a fairly deep roster on paper. They have 11 guys playing 10 or more minutes a game, 
but only four players are averaging more than 10 points a game. But, I mean, when you have LeBron and AD on the floor, do you really need that many guys to give you good averages a game? So that makes that makes sense there. So they're surprisingly a team that shares the ball a decent amount. They assist each other 62% of the time, and they have an assist ratio or the amount of plays that end in an assist at 18.1, which is best for third in the league. So even with an outlier 10-point game, LeBron has still been doing great in this series, posting a triple-double average with 25.3 points per game on 55.7% shooting and an insane 42% shooting from three at five and a quarter attempts a game. Also posting 10.3 rebounds and assists per game, having a stellar series. And AD has also been great, posting 26.5 points per game on 52% shooting. Uh, only shooting 25% from three, only on two and a half attempts per game, though. Getting nine and a half boards a game with a solid 4.3 assists per game, as well as being solid on defense, posting a defensive rating of 97, which is second best on his team, with one and a half steals a game and two blocks a game in this playoff series, finishing second for Defensive Player of the Year as well for the regular season awards. And everyone else has been doing their part, complimenting AD and LeBron nicely, basically staying out of their way. One cause for concern could be their shooting, as they're ninth in the playoffs at 53.4%, with a 56.3 true shooting percentage, with this, which is only 12th best in the playoffs so far. Defensively, this is one of the best units in the league, especially in the paint with those big bodies and JaVale McGee and Anthony Davis and whenever LeBron is in there. They have the best defensive rating in the playoffs so far at 102.2 and a third-best 10.9 net rating overall. So they really don't allow points to score in the paint much with those big bodies once again, averaging 36.5 opponent points per game in the paint, fourth so far in the playoffs. And they also put a lot of pressure on their opponents, averaging 8.3 steals and 6 blocks a game which is best for third and first, respectively. Now, for the Portland Trailblazers, basically Dame, CJ, maybe Nurkic, maybe Melo, but everybody else is kind of obsolete in this series. Dame and CJ have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting for the squad. Uh, they both have usage rates of over 25%. And they both have 20 points per game they're averaging. Not much to say there. Defensively has been kind of non-existent with this Portland team. They've got a rating of 113.2, which is 10th out of 16. And they can't grab a board to save their lives with this defense. They have a defensive rebound percentage of 68%, which is the absolute worst in the playoffs. So if you couldn't tell already, I have the Lakers closing this series out. They're just too good, too many big bodies, too many playmakers, and the Blazers are just too bad on defense to catch up. And also, it's Damian Lillard has left the bubble. He's going to get rehab, so they won't have Damian Lillard in that final game. So say what you will about C.J. McCollum. He's a great player. He can't put up 50, I don't think, against this Lakers defense. So with that in mind, I uh, have the Lakers winning in five games. So let's go ahead and move to the other side of the bracket. We have the L.A. Clippers versus the Dallas Mavericks, who, as of me writing the notes for this, the Clippers went 
3-2 up. So, it actually, this, I'm actually kind of glad I did this a little later, because this game five gave me a lot of faith in the Clippers. So, the major concern with them so far in this series was Paul George. Uh, he's been doing terrible in the playoffs, as he sadly did last year as well. However, in this game five, he sort of had a reawakening, if you will, putting up 35 points on 66% shooting, and he went an absurd 50% from three on eight attempts. He really got into a groove early so he could take over, and everything else sort of fell into place with the rest of the team playing well, as they have in the series so far. And because of this, the Clippers stomped the Mavericks, winning 154-111. to And at the same time, though, I really do feel bad for the Mavericks because they looked pretty good up to this point with Luka Doncic having an insane game four on a bad ankle. However, without Porzingis in this game, the Mavs looked like they really couldn't stop anything inside on defense. And Luka didn't have that pressure taken off of him offensively with Porzingis in the game, even though he still put up 22 points, 8 rebounds, 4 assists. So after seeing this past game and how much it's taken for Luka and for the Mavs in general to beat the Clippers and how much effort they've had to put into it, uh, even without Paul George doing very well, I have the Clippers winning the next game, cementing the series in six games. So the game that was on before that last night when I watched this was the Denver Nuggets versus the Utah Jazz, who got beat to force game six. And the Nuggets have needed Jamal Murray to save them this series, and boy has he done so. He put up 42 tonight in a must-win game. Uh, unfortunately for the Nuggets, it's more of a story of injuries, kind of like last year. Injuries have really hindered their ceiling in these playoffs. Guys such as Will Barton and Gary Harris are currently out. Um, but for as good as Denver has been on offense, uh, their defense has been absolutely atrocious. Uh, they've had a defensive rating of 127.4, which is easily the worst of anyone in the playoffs so far. And as for the Jazz, they've really got the exact same things happening with a defense that has not been too good this series with the rating of 119.7, but they've had a stellar, killer offense, easily the best so far in the playoffs against a terrible Nuggets defense. Posting a 127.9 offensive rating against them, better than anyone by five whole points. So as per usual, Donovan Mitchell has been really the catalyst for this team, putting up multiple 50-point games this series. But what's really saved them is Mike Conley stepping up. Uh, he had a really disappointing season before the bubble, and he's now averaging 26.5 a game in this series with four assists to go with it. Jordan Clarkson is also another guy who's had a really good sixth man coming off the bench, putting up almost 20 a game from there on 50% shooting. Very good from him. So this, along with their good on-ball defense, I feel, will propel them to win one of the next two games against the Nuggets. Winning the series in what is you can consider an upset, but with the injuries that the Nuggets have, I could see someone justifying it as being an even series. So the last series with games to play on this side of the bracket in the Western Conference is the Houston Rockets versus the Oklahoma City Thunder. And this has been a great series so far. Both sides 
having known each other from Chris Paul playing for the Rockets last year, being traded for Russell Westbrook, who's been on the Thunder every year of his career except for this year when he got traded. Uh, the Rockets have really made their microball experiment work, which is very surprising, even though Russell Westbrook is out for a time period that no one really knows how long he'll be out for. But they're expecting to return sometime in this series. So they rock a lineup of Daniel House and James Harden at the guard spots, Eric Gordon at small forward, Robert Covington at power forward, and P.J. Tucker at center. Poor man. Bench players, Austin Rivers and Ben McElmore coming off the bench at guard, Jeff Green, Damari Carroll, and Lucas Shard and Bob Mute, who is out with a knee injury. Uh, will be coming back whenever at the forward position. And then further centers they have backing up. Just basically some random forward. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's microball. You don't really have a center. So offensively, they are still just as analytical as ever under Mike D'Antoni. They have 59.5 of their field goal attempts coming from behind the arc this postseason which is nine percentage points more than the next closest team, who is the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, This leads them to missing a decent amount of shots, which holds them back from the truly elite marks rating-wise on offense and percentage-wise against playoff teams. They ranked ninth at a 112.1 in offensive rating and a true shooting percentage at 57.8, ranking eighth of playoff teams. However, they are also very careful with the ball this postseason, giving it up a little under 11% of the time, ranking best in the playoffs. Somehow, defensively, they haven't really collapsed at all, even under this microball experiment. Uh, They ranked 6th in defensive rating at 108.3 in the playoffs with a 3.7 net rating so far. However, you can see where the microball sort of takes its toll on this team. Uh, as they've only grabbed 45% of their boards, second lowest among playoff teams. So the small ball does allow them, however, to get back on defense better, giving them the league best 9.5 opponent points off of turnovers and a second best (coughs) 6.3 points on opposing fast breaks. So now let's look at their opponents, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are actually having a very good year in one of the most surprising campaigns of anyone really in basketball this year so their lineup chris paul and shea gilgis alexander point point guard and shooting guard uh lou uh, Lou dort has been starting on a small forward he's a very good story we'll talk about that a little bit uh danilo gallinari at power forward and steven adams normally starts here but he's got a bruised knee so we'll see if he comes back at the center spot he should be back this series i hope he's back this series he's a great player to watch uh, on the bench, Dennis Schroeder, who just left the bubble on parental leave. He will probably not be back. Uh, Hamadou Diallo, also at the guard position. You have Andre Roberson, Darius Basley, Terrence Ferguson, and Mike Muscala as well at the forward spot. And then Nerlens Noel is the backup slash now starting center. So CP3 is having something of a revitalization after what happened last year in Houston, as many people thought that he was done in the NBA at an elite level. And he's proved everybody wrong this year by leading a young Oklahoma City team 
that suddenly has one of the best outlooks in the entire NBA. So CP3 put up a line of 17.6 points per game on 48.9% shooting, uh, shooting 36.5% on 4.3 attempts from three, uh, five rebounds, 6.7 assists per game, and 1.6 steals. And the most important stat is he played 70 games this year. In the last three years, he only played 61, 58, and again, 58 games, respectively. Uh, And in the playoffs, he has only been better, showing his experience, putting up 21.5 points on 50% shooting, shooting 34.6% from three on 6.5 attempts per game, uh, grabbing seven boards, 4.5 assists per game, once again, 1.5 steals, and some great defense, as always, from him. And he's been the leader this team has needed, especially for a young, thriving Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who could get serious most improved player looks, although I'd give it to some other people first. Uh, his regular season line, he had 19 points a game on 47% shooting, shooting 34.5% from three on 3.6 attempts per game, getting 5.9 boards along with 3.3 assists per game and 1.1 steal a game. And he's only gotten better on the big stage in the postseason. So his playoff line, he's shooting 20.3 points per game, shooting 45%, and shooting an excellent 40.9% from three on five and a half attempts. Also grabbing 7.3 boards with those big long arms and getting 3.8 assists per game. Also getting 1.3 steals a game. And a shot 18 of 19 from the free throw line. Very good stat line there. And this, to me, just puts confidence in him. In his ability to perform on the big stage in the postseason going forward. And with a great mentor in CP3, there's no reason he can't become one of the young bright guards in the NBA like a John Morant. And as for their defense, they have solid one-on-one guys everywhere. CP3 might be one of the best defensive guards in the NBA uh, of all time, honestly. Uh, Even still at 35 years old. And Shea is also a solid defender with a very long wingspan. Uh, They've also been getting a surprise in the form of Lou Dort, who's been playing excellent defense for them against James Harden this series uh, as a two-way player. Uh, He was drafted this year, and he has quickly become one of the surprise surprises of their year, along with Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So even with this feel-good story from the Thunder, really want to root for them. I still have to give the advantage to the Rockets in six games. Uh, mainly because they still haven't had to play against the Rockets with Russell Westbrook, who adds a whole other intensity to this offense, as well as a spark for the team as a whole. This, along with the fact that the Thunder are missing Schroeder for the time being, another spark guy off the bench, it looks like the Thunder may have to wait another year to show off what they can truly do in the playoffs. So let's go ahead then and move on to the next projected series in the playoffs at the top of the bracket with the Lakers versus the Rockets. Once again, you have LeBron and AD with a solid supporting cast of players against the microball experiments of Houston that somehow hasn't fallen on its face completely yet. So who do I have winning? I have the Lakers in six, but I have it as an easy six, if that makes 
any sense whatsoever. So if you're savvy about numbers, watch AD in this series. He will probably eat, be eating Houston alive, just like he did in the regular season against his microball team. This is the Rockets' biggest weakness. Uh, they have no interior defense really now. P.J. Tucker, as scrappy of a defender as he is, he just can't deal with guys such as A.D. who can also shoot over him. So if you have a team who has a dominant big man, such as A.D. or someone like Giannis, they might be, they're going to have their way with this team. And that means they have to rely on stellar offensive nights in and out, which just isn't viable against a very good Lakers defense. So they'll get hot a couple of games. Harden will do his thing, so he'll probably drop a couple 50-point games, and everybody will ooh and ah at it. But when the Lakers win their games, it's going to be in blowout fashion. So I once again have them winning in six games. So let's move on to the next series, Los Angeles Clippers versus the Utah Jazz. So this series will be a test of the wings, mainly on the Jazz side of things. To see how good Donovan Mitchell is. So let's look what he's been up going to have to go up against in the Clippers. Didn't really talk about them in depth earlier. We'll talk about that now. Guard, Landry Shamit and Paul George. Forward positions, Kawhi Leonard and Marcus Morris. We have Avicii Zubats at the center spot. Some key bench players for them. Pat Bev, who is currently out with a calf string. He'll be looking to come back sometime in the near future. He'll probably be back for this series when they play it. Lou Williams, one of the best six men in the league, and Reggie Jackson at guard. Forwards, you have Jermichael Green and Pat Patterson. And then also at the center spot, you have Montrezl Harrell, who is also up for that sixth man of the year. Kind of crazy. Two guys on the same team up for sixth man of the year, number one and two. So this Clippers team is very deep. With the best, for my money, the best playoff performer in the game currently, Besides maybe LeBron James, you can make the case for him or Kawhi, but this is a team that is very unconventional. They have a lot of iso ball, a lot of mid-range shots. Their big men can't really shoot, uh, and you can see this. In the playoffs, they've only shot 39.8 of their shots from the three-point arc, ranking them 13th of 16 teams. But that really doesn't matter. Because when you have a guy like Kawhi Leonard, who is the best mid-range shooter currently in the game, and proved last year that it can still be a viable option for the playoffs when analytics are thrown out of the window. We saw this last year with him. And while PG has been having a bad series, he did come back in a big way against the Mavs, as previously mentioned. And I think that this was a very good sign of confidence from him. And I put stock into this, and I really do believe he can put up big numbers going forward for them. Defensively, this is the toughest perimeter unit in the league. You have Kawhi Leonard, best defender in the league. Super long arms, large hands, just grabs the ball from anyone. PG-13 is an elite one-on-one -on -one defender as well. And whenever Patrick Beverly comes in, he'll be like the junkyard sort of grit and grind guy player that he's always been scrapping away during the game, diving for loose balls, and in general getting in his opponent's head. We've seen this time and time again with Pat Bev. And Avicii Zubats isn't the worst defender in the league as he's got the size to contest shots, but this is definitely their weakest area. But Montrezl Harrell does bring pretty... Pretty good spark off the bench, getting a couple blocks here and there. So now, 
let's see who that defense has to go up against in the Utah Jazz. So they've got Mike Conley at point guard, Davron Mitchell at the two, Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neal at the three and four, and Rudy Gobert starting at center. Some key bench players to look out for. At guard, Jordan Clarkson and Emmanuel Moutier, as well as Georges Niang and Juwan Morgan at the forward spot, and Tony Bradley backing up at the center position. So offensively, Donovan Mitchell has the keys to this offense. Get out of his way. Uh, his usage rate is 37.6%, easily the highest on the team on this team in the playoffs. And the next closest player, Jordan Clarkson, is only at 26.6%. He's been really good in the playoffs, putting up 37.5 points per game on 54.5% shooting. Shooting 51% from three-point line on eight and a half attempts a game. Absolutely insane stuff. With four boards, five and a half assists to go along with it. Some very good free throw shooting at 93.9% on about 10 taken per game. Really stepping up when he needs to, going to the line a lot, knocking those shots down. Uh, he's really showing his colors, I think, as a true threat in the playoffs, but he isn't the only one on this team. You have Mike Conley, who's been really good this series, putting up 23.3 points per game, a little under 58% shooting, 59% from three-point land on four-and-a-half attempts a game. Also throwing in about a rebound and a half a game with 4.3 assists. And he's done a really good job as a solid setup man to Donovan, as well as being a spark player when their minutes are staggered, and he's the only one of the two on the floor. Rudy Gobert has done his thing too, averaging a double-double with 17.6 points per game, 10 boards, and 1.4 assists per game. Uh, but the main storyline, besides Mitchell, has been Jordan Clarkson, who has really been very good off the bench. His line has been 19 points per game, shooting 48.6%, also shooting 39.5% from three on seven and a half attempts per game, throwing in a couple boards and assists per game as well. He's been a perfect scoring spark for them off the bench. And defensively, they haven't shown it in this series very well, but they do have some very good defenders starting. Rudy Gobert is always a defensive player of the year candidate with the way he locks down the paint. Donovan Mitchell has really come into his own as a very solid defensive guy who really doesn't take many plays off. Mike Conley has always been good on defense, and Joe Ingles is also a very good one-on-one defensive guy. Uh, one area they have struggled in, surprisingly, is getting rebounds against this Nuggets team as they only have gotten 69.5% of them in this series, ranking 14 out of 16. They also haven't forced many turnovers, only getting 5.8 steals and 3.2 blocks a game, respectively. Uh, being 12th and 15th in the playoffs. So while Utah might have a game or two where they go off defensively or Donovan Mitchell carries them with another 50-point performance, uh, I have the Clippers winning in five. Uh, the Clippers are simply too good of a defense that can at least slow down Donovan Mitchell a little bit and hopefully keep Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson at bay. However, this will be a really good series to judge how good of a player Donovan Mitchell is and how far he has come personally, he's going up against the best perimeter defense in the league. And depending on how well he does, how much of an impact he has, he can really take that next step into the upper echelon of 
truly elite players in the league. So even though the Clippers may win this somewhat easily, I guess you could say the series, it'll still be exciting to watch the stars in it nonetheless. <clears throat> so now for the series that will most likely be the most exciting in these playoffs. That being the Battle of LA, the Lakers versus the Clippers. First things first, Clippers are very lucky this is being played in the bubble. Because <laughs> otherwise, these would all be home games for the Lakers. Because this is just how it is with the amount of support that the Lakers have in LA. So, it honestly, just the way that the home games go for the Clippers, I'm very surprised that they haven't moved out of the Staples Center yet. Or at least gone to a different city altogether. So either way, besides that, besides the point, this will be a great series to watch. You've got LeBron James versus Kawhi Leonard, the two best playoff performers in the league currently. Anthony Davis versus Paul George. Uh, can they both step up in different ways? Paul George has been here before, but against you know those Miami teams, I think he was in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, really didn't show out last year with the Thunder in the playoffs. And Anthony Davis, he's never been here before. Uh, can he prove himself? to being a great playoff player in the second round, in this deep, uh, going deep into the playoffs. How well can Anthony Davis do? Uh, whose defense will prevail as well? You both got the paint-clogging Lakers or the very savvy perimeter defense of the Clippers that just won't go away. Very interesting matchups to watch for. Uh, and although the series will go seven games, I have the Clippers winning it. And here is why. So, simply put, they have the tools of what it takes to stop LeBron. And they proved that this year when they went against him even. So, the Clippers played against LeBron four times, tied for the most he's played against any team, largest sample size. And LeBron put up his fifth worst point total at 21.3 points a game. And it is absolute shooting performances, no matter what statistic you use to measure it. <clears throat> Pardon me. Losing my voice a little bit. Ugh. A little hot outside, sorry. Anyway, worst shooting performances for LeBron. Regular field goal percentage, 36.7. True shooting percentage, 47.5. His third worst amongst any team, against any team he's played. And his effective field goal percentage is 41.2 against the Clippers. And he also has the lowest plus minus of any team he played. And negative 0.7. When is the last time you saw LeBron have a negative plus minus against a team? Once again, this is in four games. This is the largest sample size we've seen LeBron play against any team. And this isn't meant to really be a, a dig at LeBron. If anything, this is rather a compliment. Uh, sort of showing the links you have to go to stop a LeBron-led team in the playoffs. And uh, the only way you can truly ever stop a LeBron-led team in the playoffs is by beating LeBron himself. So, I still have them going the full seven. Uh, LeBron will have his heroics. He will put up some impressive performances. He'll put up like some 35, 5, and 10 games. He'll put up some triple-double games, something like that. But even if he doesn't, AD will surely have some great performances as well. But what the Clippers have is something not many teams have, which is a proven track record this year of slowing King James down. So now we have reached the finals. We have reached the final matchup 
Clippers versus Bucks for the title. So who wins it? Who's going to win this battle? You have a young Bucks team with what seems like plenty of playoffs to go, plenty of finals appearances that they will hopefully as a Bucks fan make. <laughs> Any Clippers team who really this year sort of went all in, they're really gearing up and hoping the next couple of years they can bring multiple titles to L.A., uh, to the red and blue. Who do I have winning it? Uh, it pains me to say this as a Bucks fan. I have the Clippers winning in seven. So I believe the Clippers will have a slightly easier series, this series, than they did against the Lakers. I think that the Lakers will be their toughest matchup, and here's why. The Bucks have Giannis as their main option to drive in the paint, and not many teams can stop that. Basically, no one has been able to stop Giannis this year, right? We've seen the numbers he's been able to put up. But what the Bucks, but what teams who play the Bucks need to realize is that they need a couple of things to win against the Bucks. You need a good perimeter defense to deal with when Giannis kicks it out, and he will eventually need to kick it out if you play solid enough into your defense and build the walls we've seen with Toronto. And great mid-range shooting. And the Clippers have both of these. They have Kawhi Leonard, as previously stated before, who is, bar none, the best mid-range shooter in the NBA. And the Bucks' defense likes to force teams to take analytically bad shots, such as mid-ranges and floaters. And this is why they allow three-pointers to be shot. Because statistically, you have a lower percentage of making them the further out you get. That's why they stack the paint so much, so you can't get easy layups and dunks and things of this nature. But it just so happens that the mid-range is Kawhi's favorite shot. So over the course of the year, Kawhi has shot 355 threes, which is the most he shot of any different shot category, which makes sense. It's a three-point shooting league. And then the next most shots he has taken has been 275 shots between 10 and 16 feet, of which only 22% of those were assisted shots versus 65% assist rate he got from his three-pointers. Meaning that when he has the ball in his fan, in his hands, top of the key, or at the perimeter, wherever, he has a choice where to shoot the ball, that is where he wants to shoot it. That is his shot, is the mid-range. Also, we've seen him dominate the Bucks last year. He put up almost 30 a game on 44% shooting, shooting about 34.5% on threes on five attempts a game. So once again, that's not what he likes to shoot. He likes mid-ranges. Almost grabbing 10 boards a game, four assists, and with a stellar 2.2 steals uh, and a block a game to go with it. So while I love the Bucks, they're my team, and if they win, I might do a naked lap around the block. I don't know. <laughs> but... As much as I would love to see them win this series, I just can't have them beating the Clippers, even though I do believe they will take them two seven games. Okay, that's enough basketball for now. Uh, once again, I just want to say, I haven't covered much basketball this year. And it's not because I'm not a fan of basketball. I love the NBA. The NBA is probably my favorite sport to watch currently at the moment. Uh, maybe the NFL is up there as well. College football is always up there for me, but I do love watching the NBA. But I find for me, for what I talk about on the show, it's been very hard for me to sort of slot them in so far. And I'm really glad I got an excuse to talk about it. Uh, I'll talk about the playoffs going forward. We'll recap the series, things of that nature. Talk about what's happened. So 
that's sort of your guys' NBA update, if you will. Sorry about that to all my basketball fans out there. I know I haven't covered it much, but that's how it is. Hopefully I will get to cover it a little more here in the future. So now let's move on to a little bit of Formula One. This last weekend we had the Barcelona Grand Prix, or excuse me, the Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona. There we go. Words. Man, this is a boring race. Lewis Hamilton won. Big shocker. He led the race from beginning to end, and there really isn't much to talk about here, uh, except one team who's been sort of the front of the discussion for all of the wrong reasons this year. That is Ferrari. Every time I've talked about Formula 1, Ferrari's come up in some way, shape, or form. So what happened during this race, Charles Leclerc spun out at the chicane, and his engine turned off. Uh, later, he would get it started back up, but Ferrari ended up retiring him. So this then means that Sebastian Vettel is the only driver on the grid for Ferrari. He's the only one who has the opportunity to gain points for them. So he's the main guy. All their strategy now goes into Sebastian Vettel. This hasn't happened before this year. And what does he do? He finishes seventh, which is better than I think anyone could have imagined with this car. He had a great drive, to the joy of many F1 fans, including myself. And what this race shows to me is an end to the discussion that I had last week, which is who is to blame between Ferrari or Vettel for the poor results. This week settled that answer for me. So although we'd had an idea that the treatment was lopsided at Ferrari with Seb leaving, we weren't quite sure how much of the poor performances simply came from bad strategy at Ferrari... And Seb really proved this race that he still got it. You know, he dragged this midfield car under poor radio communication to P7. During the race, the telecasters, they will play radio messages from the various teams. And messages between Vettel and Ferrari did not spell any sort of confidence between the pairing. At one point, Vettel was preserving his tires for the end of the race in whatever scenario he was in when he gets told by the team to go ahead and push so what does he do he pushes starts gaining some places you know things of that nature then a few laps later the engineer radios in asking if he could preserve those same tires we had just been told to push to the end of the race talk about miscommunication man i mean this just shows ferrari has no clue what they're doing with vettel this year in terms of race strategy and that they're heavily favoring Leclerc this year, which, once again, I get it, right? Leclerc is their guy going forward. He's the star. He's their star, right? So it does make sense that they would favor Charles Leclerc in this situation. But as an F1 fan, I have to condone the actions Ferrari have had this year with Vettel. Uh, they're showing that they don't take kindly to drivers that they don't have interest in. And honestly, who's to say the same won't happen to Carlos Sainz next year if he comes in and has a bad couple of races off the bat? So all I'm saying is I'm glad I'm not a diehard fan of Ferrari because otherwise I wouldn't know how to feel in a situation where you have a legend of a driver in Sebastian Vettel who's basically being treated like an afterthought and a car which is just not performing up to snuff, which you've done before in past years this is a team that was supposed to be competing for a championship this year supposed to be challenging the likes of lewis hamilton and valtteri botas for that top spot on the grid when really they're competing with teams such as mclaren 
for the top spot. So hopefully next year Ferrari can figure it out. If not, I don't know where they go from here. Hopefully their IndyCar ventures work out if they ever go into IndyCar. Anyway, that's all I'm going to talk about with F1 this weekend. Like I said, very boring race. Congrats to Lewis Hamilton for winning for the umpteenth time this year. And that is my review of the Barcelona Spanish Grand Prix. So we had the FedEx Cup playoffs start this weekend with the Northern Trust Tournament at TPC Boston. And there's one guy I really want to talk about here, and that is Dustin Johnson. This man put on an absolute clinic. He's been on fire the last couple of weeks, and this is just the peak of it. After finishing second last week, he shot a 67 in the first round. Then in the second round, he shot a disappointing 60. Absolutely insane. Then a 64, and then a 63 to finish the weekend. Uh, He finished 30 under at this tournament. And the closest person to him was Harris English at 19 under, giving him an 11-stroke lead to win the tournament. That is just absolutely insane. The craziest part was he wasn't the only... The 60 that he shot wasn't even the best round we saw. <laughs> that day, even. Before that, we had seen Scotty Scheffler, young standout from last weekend, shoot a 59 on the same day. He finished tied for fourth at 17th. Uh, some other notable guys in the top 10... You had Daniel Berger at number three, shot 18 under. This ain't a hobby. Kevin Kisner tied at fourth with Scotty Scheffler at 17 under. John Rahm and Webb Simpson tied for sixth at 16 under. And then Ryan Palmer, Russell Henley, and Alex Noren rounded out the top 10, finishing tied for eighth at 15 under. This whole weekend, really, for golf was a shootout. Uh, at a course that proved to be a little too easy for the golfers. I mean, when you have the guy who comes in second finishing 19 under and you have multiple guys finishing at 15 under, when last weekend Kyle Morikawa wins the tournament there at 13 under, kind of shows you that it's a little too easy of a course. I don't know, that's been happening a lot this year in golf. You've had a lot of shootouts, a lot of courses that are just, frankly, way too easy for the golfers. And they are just going on a tear such as with Dustin Johnson so very good job Dustin Johnson very good to see him doing well love watching him Uh, as I've said before he's sort of like a mark of consistency on the tour and it's always great to see him do well so that is the Northern Trust at TPC Boston so last thing I want to talk about which is certainly not least this might be one of the biggest things I've talked about so far Lionel Messi, longtime winger for Barcelona, has announced that he wishes to part ways with the team, put in his transfer request. He is basically saying he is done with the team. This news is absolutely huge. This, to me, is bigger than Tom Brady leaving the Patriots because in soccer, we all know this, money talks. Most of the time, guys get big money throw at them, they're gone. Uh, We've seen this with guys such as Neymar, for example. Only spent four years at Barcelona before getting a ton of cash thrown at him by PSG. So it's very rare to see someone stay at a club as long as Lionel Messi has, especially with the transfer fees that are paid for players nowadays and how easy it is to sort of justify letting a player go, getting a bunch of cash for him, and then sort of divvying that up for some young talent. And that's sort of been the trend of the past couple of years 
with teams who have high-profile players letting them walk. Uh, we saw this especially with Liverpool, I would say, is a very good example of this. They let what was arguably the best guy on their team at the time, Felipe Coutinho. They sold him to Barcelona for a $100 million plus transfer fee. It was in the $120 million. Sorry, European fans, I'm using dollars. <laughs> uh, fee, and they used that to go get guys such as Virgil, did it, Virgil van Dijk, uh, such as Allison Becker, who have obviously now sort of cemented themselves as one of the best teams in the Premier League. So it's very common to see this type of thing. Um, and Lionel Messi has been with this team since the beginning. Uh, he played his first minutes with the club in 2004 at age 17, and he's been with the team since for 15 years. How about that? He is 32 years old now. Man, this guy has built such a good resume. He's been part of 10 La Liga winning Barcelona teams, with their worst finish coming in third in the 2007-2008 season. They've won the Champions League twice, and then won the Copa del Rey four times. And throughout the 15 years he's been at Barcelona, this is insane to me. There have been four names to earn top score. Ronaldinho, Samuel Eto'o, a rare one-off by Luis Suarez, and Lionel Messi, who has been a top goal scorer for 10 seasons out of the 15 he's been there. That is absolutely remarkable. Uh, he's led La Liga in goals seven times, finishing with 50 goals in 2011-12 season. Led La Liga in assists six times. And he actually had his best mark this previous year at 20 assists. <clears throat> he's been Argentina's footballer of the year every year except 2006 and 2014. And has been on the FIFA Pro 11 since 2007. I think that was the inception of that list. And to top it all off, he has won six Ballon d'Ors, which for those of you who don't follow soccer very well, that is best player in the world, MVP if you will. But you're not judging it for a single league. You're judging it amongst every single player in the world you're being judged. So he was named best player in the world six times, including a stretch where he won four in a row, four times in a row, 2009 to 2012. He was rated as the best player in the world. So my point is with all of this, if you couldn't tell, Lionel Messi is one of the best to ever do it for one of the best clubs on the planet who he's been synch synchronous with since his rise to the global stage 15 years ago. And now he is leaving. So as shocking as this is, we have to move on to the next question, which is where does Barcelona go from here? So after a disappointing year last year, they fire Ernesto Valverde and they bring in Ronald Koeman. So we'll see how they recover on that front. Um, but who do you bring in to replace arguably the best player in your franchise's storied history? Um, so here's a couple of people that have been sort of thrown in the rumors and a couple of people that I would look at if I was sort of a front office Barcelona manager. So Paulo Diabala for Juventus is the obvious choice that comes to mind. Uh, he has stated his admiration to the club before, and he's 26 years old, so... He's got plenty of time in front of him to really make his mark uh, at Barcelona. So another move that's been rumored forever, ever since Neymar even left, he's been rumored at coming back to Barcelona. And at 28 years old, he'd just be entering the prime for this team, although they would be paying a hefty fee for him, as is known with Neymar. 
he costs a hefty price tag, as always. Or, perhaps if Messi is going to Man City, as is rumored, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, they could ask for a swap of one of their bright young stars, such as perhaps a Raheem Sterling or a Leroy Sané at winger, potentially. Not sure if Man City would go for that, but that might be what it takes. If they don't want to pay, you know, a half a billion dollar transfer fee for Lionel Messi, whatever it is that they'll have to pay for him. It'll be a pretty penny. So maybe they could lower the transfer fee for him, give up a Sterling or a Sané. Or Barcelona could just stick with who they have. They still have a really great attack in front. You have Luis Suarez, Antoine Griezmann, and Ousmane Dembele who they can now give the spotlight to and let him start every game and really flourish in that winger spot and develop as he's only 23 years of age. So he could, in theory, I'm not saying he will be, he could become this next household name, household messy, where he stays at the club for 10-plus years. Who knows? So whatever they do, they are in such a tough spot. Obviously losing arguably what's been the best player in the world for 10 years, going back and forth to 10 him and Cristiano Ronaldo. So, as for Messi, where does he go in all of this? The better question is, where can he afford to go? Who's going to be able to pay what will be surely a hefty transfer fee for him? So, as previously mentioned, uh, Man City is the obvious choice here. Uh, he's reuniting with Pep Guardiola and Sergio Aguero, fellow teammate, for Argentina, as well as joining an Excellent title contending team year in and year out, who I hate because I'm a Liverpool fan. <laughs> kind of have to hate them. Uh, PSG, someone who will always be rumored with big stars just because they have the money for that. Uh, and former teammate Neymar is a member of that team, so you could see sort of a reuniting of those two, as it doesn't seem like they did sort of sour the relationship, maybe. But I think that there is common ground there. And I think that if they wanted to get back together, they could set their differences aside and make it work, per se. Uh, Inter Milan is another team that's been talked about. As they, with their new owners, uh, these new Chinese bigwigs, have really thrown a lot of money into the team. And uh, actually, this team... Uh, you might have heard of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who just signed a guy you might have heard of, Tom Brady, are also owned by the same Chinese family. So they could also throw a lot of money at Lionel Messi to try to end this reign that Juventus has had over Serie A for, oh my goodness, who knows how long it's been now. And who wouldn't want to see Ronaldo versus Messi again? Ronaldo playing for Juventus now in what, People consider to be the twilight of his career, as will be Messi whenever he makes this move. Um, you could also see him just suck it up. And if he doesn't get transferred, stick it out. Uh, he is, after all, if he stays or leaves, he will be the best player on this Barcelona team, no matter who's there right now. And if he does retire with Barcelona, he will uh, retire to the joy of his fans. You know, people appreciate Messi for what he's done. I appreciate Messi for what he's done. He is one of, if not, you can make the argument, the greatest footballer of all time. Uh, certainly the argument between him and Ronaldo has been interesting the past couple of years. 
And it would be very cool to see him retire in that Barcelona jersey. But as we've seen from guys such as Iniesta and Xabi, uh, um, you have to move on when the time is right. Um, but those guys were not anywhere near as good as Messi still is when they left. Uh, hence why they went to Japan and Qatar, respectively. So, what is my bet with Messi? Where do I think that he goes? I think Manchester City is the place that we will end up seeing him. Uh, he's got Pep Guardiola, who was his manager at Barcelona, who they really got along with. Sergio Aguero was there as well. And we know Man City can hand out the hefty paychecks that they love to hand out. Uh, they should be the favorites to grab Messi once everything is said and done. So, one thing is for sure after this move is done, or if he doesn't move at all even, La Liga and the rest of soccer, football, whatever you call it, <clears throat> as it is, will have a completely different outlook uh, forever, honestly, as one of the best to ever do it is on the move, sort of. Uh, it's, it's sort of sad to think about, really, because as much as people argue between Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, who's better this, his fans can be, both their fans can be really toxic at times. Um, it's really great just to see these two. And you have to recognize, you're watching two of the greatest to ever do it play at the exact same time. Ronaldo is only a year older than Messi is. I mean... You could, as a soccer fan, you couldn't ask for anything much better than that. So, as a soccer fan, I tip my cap to you, Messi and Ronaldo, for giving us multitudes of years of greatness. And hopefully, you will give us more years of greatness to come at wherever you go, Messi, and at Juventus slash whenever you move to the MLS, Ronaldo. We will love you here, in America. Please come to the MLS eventually. We need some sort of talent here. The MLS sucks. <laughs> anyway. Long-winded rant over. Lionel Messi moving. I hope he doesn't go to Man City, but he probably will. That's the Liverpool fan in me. Uh, anyway, that's all I have for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching. Sorry it's been a little while since I've uploaded. Uh, this is kind of... To make up for that, sort of a jam-packed episode, as you can see from the runtime of it. Uh, if you stick around for the whole thing, great. Uh, make sure you... Like, comment, subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're on Spotify, give it a follow. Uh, listen to some of my older stuff, potentially. Give it a download. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think of it. Uh, at Real Sports Porch on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, follow those. As well as my personal Instagram and Twitter, at JeffreyA2017. Uh, hit me up. Tell me how the show is. Uh, give me any sort of constructive criticism you may. This is still only my sixth episode in, so please, anything you guys have to add to it, uh, let me know. Uh, you, the fans, are what really make this show happen, and you're the reason why I keep doing it. Seeing all the positive feedback, all the positive comments, <clears throat> I really do appreciate it. And I thank you all very much for listening, tuning in, watching, whatever, and I will see you guys on the next one.